my alma mater, the School of Visual Arts, in New York City, 23rd Street, and had a slogan that was printed on all their promotional posters, and it read, being good is not enough when you dream of being great. Now, there's a phrase that our teachers can relate to, I'm sure, not only in our own work, but more importantly, in our in our students' work. I mean, as art teachers, we aspire for rich artworks, right, from our students. <laughs> and you can get frustrated when, when the results are less than spectacular, shall we say. Some art teachers, in particular, face this concern when they transition uh, to a choice-based program, because they may notice at first that, let's say, their high school students' artwork looks well like high school students' artwork. <laughs> So how do we motivate students to not just settle for good, but to create something great? To begin with, we can't confuse the results of teacher-directed art with a look of, of authentic student artwork. That's, that's to start with, because if you've been giving teacher-directed projects and now you're switching to student-directed work, you're gonna notice a difference. Like with student-directed work, when it's compared to teacher-designed projects, it's gonna look less polished, let's put it that way. Um, the polished look, it's really the results, it's the outcome of the students following the teachers created exemplar a lot of times. And choice teachers um, usually don't have exemplars because they don't know what the students are gonna make because the students design the project. Um, so, but when they eliminate the exemplar, they have this sort of pre, you know, presumption that they're removing limitations and that the students are just going to surpass expectations. They're going to go beyond a predetermined skill level. And, and that can happen. <laughs> However, you know, exemplars are created to demonstrate an expected skill level. That's why they're there. So the challenge becomes having the students create beyond the standard level when they're unfamiliar with that level, that that level is available, really. So we're going to talk about a few methods to help students surpass good and achieve great. I'm gonna get right back to that. But first, I'm gonna tell a story. <laughs> so I like to tell stories. I had one of my students and approached me and asked um, what I had done with one of his recently created artworks. He created this, it was it was a large painting. It had thick line, uh, it was a face, just really thick lines, black lines, um, just really bold, really striking, I thought. Um, you know, and he, he created it after I had encouraged him to consider enlarging it, he had done a pencil drawing, like a little sketch. And I told him, you know, you need to go bigger with that. And he did. And so when he asked me, like, what did you do with the artwork? I just told him I hung it in the, in the display case. And he said, Mr. Sands, you're a good teacher. And I was like, thanks. I'm like, why? He's like, my old teacher would have probably given me a 40. <laughs> I was like, so, you know, I asked, you know, why he thought he would have received such a low grade. And he explained that. You know, he didn't draw really well, and at his previous school, he received low marks on his projects. In this class, he said, you know, I can make art and not worry about all that. And that goes a little bit back to last week when I was talking about grading, but I don't want to digress. You can listen to the previous pod podcast, and, and I'll tell you all about it. Um, but, I, but I decided I wanted to reflect on what he was saying to me. Um, and what I had done that was different from his previous experiences you know, I needed to understand that so I could continue this trend, which was seemed a very positive one in, in his eyes and in mine. So instead of focusing on his lack of drawing skills, what I had asked him to do was to expand on his use of line. I, I figured out that if I hadn't looked at his weaknesses, but rather I looked for his strengths, and then I asked him to pursue his strength further, it would work. But I'm kind of under the opinion that some of what's happening in education today goes against 
working that way. There's sort of a growth proving mindset, I'm going to call it that. Um, and, and that kind of goes against it. I think of like student learning objectives, for example. Um, like a lot of times today, you have these project based rubrics, and they're designed to establish if the student meets a, pre a predetermined objective. And so the objective is often reduced to specific tasks. So they can assign the tasks, and if the student can achieve the tasks, then you can assign a certain weight, and grades are determined by which tasks the student meets and which tasks they don't meet. Um, and, and while this can be exploited, let me use that word, to, pre to present measured growth, it's not inherently growth-centric, if you will. In fact, I even think it could kind of be like a deterrent to growth. Um, and I'll just give you an illustration of what I'm, what I'm saying. I think of it like this way. If I was going to teach someone to write, um, I wouldn't take the pencil and shove it into the right hand and then, you know, try to determine if they, if they had handwriting improved or not. Uh, because what if the kid was left-handed? <laughs> I think the best thing to do would be to decide, let's find out which hand the student is, has his dominant hand, which is his, his dominant hand. And then we can understand how he's, you know, we're going to improve his, his writing and his handwriting. So... I think as our teachers, you know, we need to we need to seek out our students' strengths and just co cultivate their natural abilities. I'm going to give you another example of someone I'm working with right now. This student is in my AP art class, and she um, loves to draw, and and she had some Prismacolors, and she's actually pretty good technically. So when she came into the AP art class, she was decided she was going to do these color pencil drawings and then bring them into the computer and kind of work them over, uh, manipulate them. And that was going to be the way she worked. And they were fairly successful, but I knew it wasn't her strength. Her strength was hands-on. She was like a crafty kid. She needed to be gluing stuff, sewing stuff together. She needed to be building. She needed to be constructing. So I said to her like one day, why don't you just try to make like a little 3D creature? I had, I had a project box out. I was working with some other kids about how to make like these recycled creatures. And I was like, why don't you just make one and just have some fun with it and she did she made a giraffe and then I'm like you know it'd be cool if you painted up did a painting for the background and she did that too and then she found a flower that went with it and then we took a picture of it and I was like this is a great looking illustration right here and she had so much fun doing it I'm like you need to do another one of these so then now she had the idea of how she was going to do it she went and she thought about what she might want to act like the giraffe was just random. She just made a giraffe. But this time she thought about like what story she wanted to tell. So she did Cinderella's stepsister. And if you read the original Grimm's fairy tale, I guess the stepsisters get their eyeballs eaten out by a bird, <laughs> which is kind of gross. But that's what she decided to do. So she made this like three-dimensional Cinderella stepsister out of cloth and wire and very whimsical and playful, but with a lot of little details like put on a necklace and everything and put on one eye, <laughs> made another eye with blood that she made out of glue, <laughs> hot glue melted it made like blood. Then she made a little three-dimensional bird. She made a wall it could sit on that looked like it was like in a church wall because that's where it happened. And then she put the bird on its shoulder and she put an eye in the bird's mouth and <laughs> we took a picture of it. It's just this really clever thing. And I can't say for sure right now how well she's going to do on the AP exam. I, I hope she does well because I think these are fantastic illustrations she's putting together. But she's having a blast doing it and they're just getting better and better. Now she's actually working on one for the Little Mermaid. So with that said, as our teachers, we, we need to seek out our students' strengths. And as I said, cultivate their natural abilities. That's what it's all about. So instead of determining what we want the student to know, 
were setting objectives that begin with, hey, quote, the student will be able to blah, blah, blah. We could be asking questions. We could be asking, where does the student show potential? Or what does the student want to accomplish? Or what instructions can I, as a teacher, provide to foster my student's abilities? Have you ever seen, I bet you have, there's a TED Talk, Do Schools Kill Creativity with uh, Sir Ken Robinson? If you've ever seen it, he tells a story of a, a British ballerina and a choreographer, uh, Gillian Lynn, I believe her name was. And in the video, Robinson is explaining in the TED Talk, and Robinson explains how, as a girl, Lynn was taken to the doctor because she couldn't sit still. But in, instead of looking at the weakness, the doctor looked at it and she, and, you know, just determined like, look how she's moving around. Look how she likes, like, you need to direct her into dance. Do you have a dancer on your hand? And of course she grows up to be this great. You see, Ken Robinson tells the story so much better, but you've probably seen it. So you know what I'm talking about? Well, it's what I'm talking about. It's how, what we should be doing. We should encourage our students to further pursue their strengths. And, and then we too will, will see authentic growth or at least a potential for it, (laughs) authentic growth. So that takes us back to how can we help students surpass good and achieve great? So I've got just a couple ideas. I'm going to throw them out there. Um, Number one, we can fill their creative bank accounts. Uh, There's a video, another video you can look online by Jake Parker, and it's titled Your Creative Bank Account. And um, I think it's really kind of gone viral with our teachers. So you've probably seen it or maybe you've even shown it. I hope you have. If not, you should show this to your students. I built it into a lesson recently. Um, The topic of the video emphasizes the advantages of filling our mind with inspiration. Um, This means, you know, keeping up with the latest happenings in the art world, spending time each week looking at websites like This Is Colossal, thisiscolossal.com, or Board Panda, or Art21, the pbs.org program. you know, we got to seek artists and artworks to share with our students. And by doing this and sharing these findings um, with our class, we're going to be filling their um, their bank account. But we don't have to just do it alone. We have to ask them to fill their artistic bank accounts, too. So showing that video is a really good way for them to start understanding how to do that. And then you can ask them, how are you filling your creative bank account? Put it on them. It's not all on us, right? We have enough to do. <laughs> um, always, I think another example is always suggest materials and techniques. I'll go back to the story with the, the girl before, but I knew she she needed, she was a crafty person, so I suggested those materials and that technique to make that first giraffe. Because the bottom line here is that the students don't know what they don't know. So it's even more important for us to inform them of possibilities. Like they're going to work with familiar materials. They're going to work with familiar mediums. um, And they may not necessarily make decisions to step out of their comfort zone. Uh, But we, having having experienced the understanding of a variety of resources, that allows us to make recommendations for materials and techniques that the students just may not know about or may not be familiar with. So we have to look for those opportunities to suggest options. For example, you know, if the student's creating a small abstract painting, you know, suggest they learn how to stretch a canvas, like stretch a big canvas. Or um, if, if they like doing, you know, the line drawings, recommend etchings or relief printing. Or think like if a student is interested in fashion, pull out a sewing machine if you have one, you know, or have them, you know, they could make a whole new outfit. It would be kind of cool. All right. That seems kind of common sense, but I don't think we naturally do it. We kind of have to teach ourselves to do these things. Next, this one's important. It's okay to say no. <laughs> I love saying no. Do you remember the podcast with the story of the girl who wanted to make a Zentangle elephant? No. Their Pinterest is full of Zentangle elephants. I don't need another Zentangle elephant. <laughs> 
because and this ties in with the other one as well but taking risks can be very uncomfortable for students they don't want to do it they're scared to do it but Taking risks and it leads to remarkable growth potential. At least it, it has the potential to lead to remarkable growth potential. Like left to your, their own devices, students are very rarely going to stretch. You're going to have those some, some of those students, those remarkable students who are who are not afraid to take risks, and that great. That's great. But a lot of times, often they just they're just not going to stretch beyond their comfort zone. So we need to push them out of their proverbial nests. Get out, little bird, fly. So if, no, not if, when, <laughs> when a student proposes a project idea that presents little growth potential, don't be afraid to say no. Ask them to develop their idea further. And you know, as I mentioned, suggest materials and techniques that they might have not considered using. Present other artists to enlarge their creativity bank account. But don't let them settle for good. Ask that they achieve great. So let's say we do all that and uh, the student just gets stuck. And I'm not talking about stuck like halfway through a project. Students will get stuck halfway through a project. And usually for two reasons, um, they'll start working on it and one of two things happen. Either first, they look at it and they just cannot see that it's coming out very well. And they just stop. They want to stop working on it. And in that case, you got to encourage them because it's probably a chance that they cannot see that they can go further with it. So that's one way they get stuck halfway through a project. The other reason they get stuck halfway through a project is because they're working on it and it starts coming out really good and they're like wow I, I drew that arm great I'm afraid to do the hands I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up so that's another way artists get stuck and we have to push them through those situations but that's what I'm talking about there is that's like in the middle of a project I'm talking about getting stuck for ideas for inspiration I mean everyone's they just don't have something to start with everyone struggles with a lack of inspiration you know the fear of the white canvas you know mental block I didn't have any ideas um, it doesn't matter what we call it it, it just happens to all of us um, getting stuck doesn't only happen to visual artists it happens to musicians it happens to writers really anyone working in the creative field is going to get stuck at some point um, and it happens to me many times however I found a simple solution to unstick the stuck and it goes really goes back to the 1970s <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm that old. <laughs> um, during my college days, by the way, I was not in college in the 1970s, but uh, but later on. But during my college days, I played in an original band, and I I experienced creativity, creative block when when writing songs. Um, my goal was to write song lyrics with substance and meaning. You know, I wanted to have these great lyrics that when you listen to them, they made they they rhymed, they made sense, they were smart, they were clever. But the pressure I imposed on myself was actually kind of stifling. Um, the harder I tried, sometimes the harder it became to write a quality song. So after a while, I just I couldn't write anything. <laughs> I just like stifled myself into, oh, I just can't do this. At least, you know, nothing I considered good myself. So then one day it hit me. Why am I trying so hard to write something good? What if I purposely wrote something awful? What if I wrote a disco song? <laughs> That's where the 1970s comes from. So like, I'll have to pause here. I have to apologize if you're one of those two people on the planet that actually likes disco. <laughs> but as a kid growing up, and I was a kid in the 70s, we wore buttons that read, disco sucks. Uh-oh, I should have put one of those advisors on here like, oh, foul language. Okay, <laughs> maybe it was a little crude, but you know, like in, in, in upper elementary, middle school, you know, that's what we were doing. And we were really rebelling against um, what, what we considered lower 
lower quality music standards. Um, you know, the the lyrics to uh, "Get Up and Boogie" or uh, "Disco Duck" <laughs> aren't exactly awe-inspiring. <laughs> but even if you're not old enough to have listened to Boogie Fever, I could I could sing it to you if you'd ever really listened to it, like on your AM transistor radio. <laughs> there's a good chance that you've maybe watched that '70s show. <laughs> you know, that that was about. It was just about forget the show for a minute the songs it was about substance over being superficial like Hyde versus Jackie okay we'll put it like that so why write a disco song when I recorded my first disco song I placed all good taste and music aside that's how I started I picked this I had a drum machine I picked the simplest drum track I recorded the most tasteless guitar riff and I wrote really frivolous lyrics like bump 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 I actually wrote a song called bump 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 and it was it was fun Um, That was the title of my first disco song, and it was inspired by a road sign that I'd seen on the bus ride home, you know, like, bump ahead. So I was like, bump, 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 that'd be kind of fun. So yes, the song was frivolous, and it was silly and dumb, and it was I probably had the most fun writing that of all the songs that I wrote, all these serious songs that were so... But this, this was like fun. And it was fun to listen to. It was a fun, happy song. So what happened next was even more exciting. I, I started writing songs again. And not disco songs, but quality songs that I was proud of. Why? What happened? I think that by writing a disco song, I, I let down my guard. I was able to loosen up. I was able to have some fun, you know? And by understanding that the disco song, it didn't have to be good. You know, in fact, it should have been bad. I was allowing myself that liberty to be creative and experimental and have fun. And it was that freedom that carried over even when I went back to write the less disco sounding songs. So how does this tie into art kids getting stuck? Like where, where, where does this rabbit hole you just went down? Oh, hold on, I'm bringing it around right now. So making disco art. If we have a student that is stuck, He's just afraid to move forward because he's just not going to do anything good. We need to allow him that same freedom. We need to encourage them to create a disco work of art. To be clear, that doesn't mean create a work of art inspired by disco. <laughs> that will lead to an overuse of glitter, and our teachers don't usually like glitter, so we're going to stay away from making art that looks like disco. But instead, we should encourage them, uh, the students that stuck, to create something superficial, silly, frivolous, a frivolous work of art, something so ridiculous, it, it just doesn't, it's just over the top ridiculous. And and what does that look like? Well, you don't think too hard about it. Don't think too hard about the answer to that question because that defeats the purpose. <laughs> Instead, we should only consider a starting point. So an example might be uh, create a silly portrait, you know, but collaging different sized facial features images together. Or perhaps, um, you know, use bright colored crayons and draw a cartoon version of your friend. Or another idea might be, you know, squeeze some paint together on paper and do like the Rorschach test. Rorschach test, I can say it. <laughs> and then when it's dry, you know, use a Sharpie and find him in it, find hidden images in it. it. Must be getting the end of the podcast. I'm starting to trip over my words. Okay, it's not really important what the student does. Nor is it important that he, you know, he, there even be a final product for that matter. What's important is that the student like just lowers their self-imposed high standards and simply allows himself to play. That's right. Play, after all, is the foundation of learning. So now that my tongue is definitely getting tired, I'm going to wrap up this podcast. Um, and, and I will end it by saying I have not always achieved great myself. In fact, I've failed many times. If you've heard the podcast about uh, failing or some of the other uh, excerpts from my book, Project Flop, um, it, I can prove it. <laughs> 
So if you're interested in learning more about choice, check out the books, uh, Making Artists or The Open Art Room, available on Davis Publications. It's davisart.com, davisart.com. Or you can check out all my resources on artistsouthb.com, all for free. I got plenty of stuff on there. Might help you out. Um, or you can shoot me an email. I have some people shoot me an email if you have a question that I haven't answered or you have some suggestions for future podcasts. That would be great, too. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.